Hello and welcome to an Anfield Extra special on this international week. Uh, I'm Neil Jones and I'm joined by Andy Kelly, the dream team reunited after a, a little absence. Andy, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, mate. I'm fine. Good stuff, good stuff. And I said dream team, we've got a loan signing in as well for, for this podcast. And what a loan signing. If, if people doubt our ambition as a club and as a podcast, they uh, they will not after after this one. We've got in reporter from ESPN, The Spiegel, uh, BT Sport, the BBC, The Guardian, Sky in Germany, the author of Das Reboot, which is a, a great book about German football's renaissance and eventual World Cup win, and also of English football as well, which I can recommend as well. We've got Raphael Honigstein on the line. Rafa, thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you for the very kind words and the lovely intro. Ah, not a problem, not a problem. Uh, you couldn't not like Das Reboot with the most perfect pun title you could ever ever have, uh, I think, as a, as a book. Absolutely perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, right, so we'll go straight into it. We have a new book from yourself, which is out next week uh, in the shops. We've had a copy of it sent over to our office today, and the subject will be of great interest to our listeners, of course. It's Jürgen Klopp. The book is Klopp, Bring the Noise, uh, written by yourself, Rafa. Tell us a little bit, first of all, how long have you been working on this and where did the idea to, to, to write a book about Jürgen come from? So the idea came quite a while ago. As soon as Jürgen Klopp uh, came manager at Liverpool, I realised uh, really from first-hand experience how big the interest was in him. I was part of the BT Sport pre-match uh, coverage for his first game at Spurs, but it felt like a FA Cup final uh, day, you know, like hours and hours of Jürgen Klopp uh, material. And... Uh, Pretty, it became pretty clear that there was tremendous interest for the book. Uh, my agent had a few discussions with publishers and they all really liked the idea and then we did the deal in the summer. And uh, then it took me, uh, I'd say about 10 months of researching and, and writing the book. The problem with, with a book like this is that you know, you're basically looking at 49 years of a guy's life, and because uh, it wasn't just a Liverpool book, it really was a biography. Yeah. So um, I travelled a lot to to Germany, spoke to a lot of people, and um, I think in the end I must have spoken to about 40, maybe 50 people in total. Some are um, off the record, and yeah. it took a long, long time uh, getting all this material together, and then trying to make it into a book that worked um, with all the different layers, and also with a view of um, the different markets, because this was also a book that uh, will be published in Germany, in uh, in German, and um, I needed it to work sort of above levels for people who uh, are relatively new to Klopp, uh, but also those who have heard of him before and know him a little bit from his Germany days. I wanted to tick all the boxes, if possible. And Rafa, the, the lots of you know in our first look through some very interesting interviews which we'll come on to talk about in the book did, did Jürgen know you were doing the book was he happy for you to talk to members of for instance I think his sisters uh, is interviewed in the in the book and was he was he happy with you interviewing uh, acquaintances friends family members and that type of thing yeah, I mean, I I spoke to his agent and uh, I reached out to him and wanted to see how they felt about it. And they were quite categorical that he didn't want to be um, part of it uh, as far as making his, his book is concerned. Uh, their idea is to only do a big book once he's retired from coaching, which could be another 10, maybe 20 years. 
Um, but they, at the same time, made it clear that they weren't going to put any barriers in our way and, and open a few doors for us. And I was very um, grateful to him and uh, the people around him that they, whoever asked his permission, and a lot of people did, you know, even former players said, oh, I have to ask Jürgen first before I speak to you. Uh, he always said yes. So he made it really possible to, to speak to all these guys. That's good. I mean, one of the, the uh, one of the big, um, if you like, scoops from the book is, is a, an on-the-record chat with uh, someone who obviously Liverpool fans will be familiar with, although not that much. Mike Gordon, the president of FSG, obviously there's a, there's a chapter there which details the, the talks which led to, to Klopp becoming the Liverpool manager. How, how did you find Mike Gordon and how did you find that sort of getting him to open up about, about you know, quite a, quite a secretive time really at Liverpool, you know, replacing the manager and obviously the, the big coup really of Landon Klopp? Uh, Mike Gordon was extremely helpful and, uh, and open actually. Um, he wanted to, to see the quotes before they go into the book, but he did not change a single comma. And uh, when I actually asked him if I could speak to him again because I had some extra questions, he said to me, uh, you can always call me because Jurgen Klopp is one of my favourite subjects. <laughs> so nice to know. He enjoyed um, talking about Jurgen, talking about the process. He wasn't as open as all of the details that you find in the book because some of them appears together from sort of other yeah. uh, witnesses who were involved. Um, but uh, he was... I think you could find in, in what he said that he's very genuine and warm and uh, just really in, in full of admiration for Jürgen and I think he, he almost wanted it to, to wanted that to be out there as a message and um, he was really, really nice guy, really nice guy, uh, very down to earth, no airs and graces and, uh, and a guy who really I think enjoys, enjoys working with Liverpool and enjoys um, the cooperation with, with Jürgen as well very much. Obviously they, they went into these negotiations, Mike Gordon and, and people in New York and, and then there was a sort of, when the deal was done there was an exchange of texts and I think Jürgen exclaimed wow uh, in terms of the deal being done but uh, he, he, you know, he, he was clearly very keen to come to Liverpool to get that deal done and uh, how, do, how do you view how he feels at, at, at being manager of Liverpool now and over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think what came across from talking to people on both sides is how just how excited they were about the fact that the other side actually wanted wanted them. Uh, I think from Jürgen's point of view, um, you know, once you're a dormant, there's only other, so many other clubs you can go to that really sort of excite you uh, beyond the money, beyond the trophies, but more of a kind of emotional level. And uh, I think he almost sort of couldn't believe his luck that Liverpool which was talked about for a long time, then actually materialised at the perfect time for him. And certainly talking to SSG, I got the feeling that they themselves felt that you know, Klopp coming there uh, showed them that they were on the right track, that it was a kind of a validation for where they were going and the ability to attract such a, a brand name, such a big manager, um, filled them with pride. So, you know, we often talk about clubs and coaches in terms of a marriage and a kind of relationship um, I think that was very clear to me that you had this kind of this idea that both sides felt almost like they wanted to pinch themselves you know wow I'm really with this guy you know? yeah. and uh, that, that came across I think quite clearly and uh, uh, quite strongly and in very genuine terms I would say I mean, 
from my perspective, Rafa, when, I, when Klopp first sort of became the... He started coming onto the radar in England, if you like, when Dortmund obviously were, were, were rising up as, as two times Bundesliga champions and going to the Champions League final. It did look like it was inevitable that one day he'd end up in England and I, I understand he's had chances potentially to manage other clubs. Was that felt in Germany that he would, you know, he would go global, if you like, that he would he would turn into sort of more than just a German icon, he would become a European worldwide? I think after a while people realised that um, he was either going to be the next Germany manager or um, or get a big, big job abroad. And, you know, there was all sorts of talk about the Spanish clubs being interested, about offers from Italy. But because of the things he stands for and his ideas about football and also the stuff he said on the record about his love for the English game, in, in both in the real sense, you know, the Premier League, but also sort of as an idea of how football should be played, I think it was clear um, that it would be a very good fit for him. And I remember, this is something that's not in the book, but I remember talking to somebody closely to him, you know, about the chance to maybe to go to Spurs or Manchester City. And you could see kind of the hesitation a little bit that they thought, yeah, you know, amazing offers, but is it really the right kind of fit for, for Jürgen? Does he need a club that has a kind of a more traditional, bigger appeal? I mean, maybe that's a bit unfair on Spurs because obviously they have... They have a huge, uh, huge tradition, but you could see that he was holding up for something bigger. I think that's the, the best way to put it. And Rafi, in terms of, you'd have followed him closer than us through his his career in, in Germany. Was it was it any surprise to you, or was it was it absolutely sort of what you expected that when he landed at at Anfield and from from his first press conference onwards, really, that he made such an impact in terms of. Uh, a change in a mood really around the club very quickly? No, I wasn't really surprised. Although when I did then the research, I was, of course, even less surprised because it's one thing to, to, to see it and to follow it from a distance, but then you hear it from the people who are actually there, involved, seeing him every day, seeing the kind of impact, also seeing the kind of almost nostalgia that people have for him, you know, the, long, the, the people at Mainz, the people at... Dortmund to all wish, kind of, even though they won't necessarily say it, that he might come back one day. Uh, that's, I think, when you really understand just how how he manages to connect with people. But of course, we know from just from his public engagements, from television, from the way he comes across, even from a distance, that he has that ability. But then you you hear the stories, you hear the the, the anecdotes, the way he really managed to reach out to people and, and really immerse himself in the culture of these clubs, then you, I think, get a lot more of what he's about. It's the kind of stuff that doesn't really get into the news because it's not necessarily a news story. Um, if he talks to somebody, you know, about the, about their personal problem, but I think it's a nice little insight in, in just um, how, how big a manager is. And what that, I mean, is not somebody who just sees his job as showing up on a Monday morning, talking to the team, and then going home again at 4 o'clock. Uh, he's somebody, as, um, as Hans-Joachim Watzke, the Dortmund CEO said, who is, is a manager of a whole club, a uh, manager for the whole club. And I think that's something that comes across quite, um, quite strongly from, uh, from the people that he's worked with in the past. Yeah, I was going to say there's a few examples of that littered throughout the book, and we know we know from dealing with Klopp and, and speaking to people at, at Liverpool that he, he's a he's a very um, he has his WhatsApp groups and he, he's always speaking to players, you know, and he, he's always sort of 
um, dealing with them. And I think you detail that you know that he's he's a, a prolific sort of texter of, of of players. And even even at one stage, there's there's, there's a, as a player who he thought was going to go to Dortmund, and obviously a player who's doing very well now in De Bruyne. There's a little those kind of things seem to be natural to Klopp. He's a people person. Did, did mm-hmm. you did you find that in your dealings with him when he was in Germany? And do you think that he's changed at all since he's been in England, or is he just just the same as he as he always was? I think, um, no, I don't think things have changed. I think he's still is the same guy, the same um, person as a coach, as a, as a human being. And uh, it was incredible to find that uh, almost everyone I talked to only had good things to say. I mean, the one or two people who were sort of a little bit more negative or whatever you want to call it, even they said to me, yeah, you know, we might have had our differences, or I might not like this or that, but actually I love him uh, still. <laughs> and that was very, very rare. And I find myself liking him more now that I, after I've spoken to all these people, because I feel that they can't all be wrong. Um, yeah. But well, I think what is different at the moment is that at the end of his Germany spell uh, with Dortmund, uh, not really getting to the same kind of levels after 2013, I think he got a little bit short and a little bit aggressive with the media. And of course, that the media shape, shaped the coach's image. So unless you're there and talk to him when the, when the cameras are off and um, spend time with him on the training, etc., your image of the last few years was somebody who was just basically a little bit little bit aggressive and a little bit uh, maybe on the defensive side and clearly here it's very different because Liverpool I think for all the problems the trajectory still is very much going up you can see that things are happening you could see that things are improving and you could see that the majority of people certainly that he works with uh, both on the media side and on the club side and the player side all buy into what he's trying to do and I think he's much more relaxed and much more charming and uh, just happy to be there um, so that has changed. I don't think he himself has changed. Yeah, Rob, it's interesting you say that because I think when we were waiting for him to arrive at Anfield, we, we'd heard reports of sort of quite big bust-ups with the media in Germany and, and this sort of thing. And, and, and while he's always keen to keep the media in their place, if you like, and uh, regularly tells everybody that he doesn't read anything anybody, anybody writes unless he sees it, at the petrol station in the, on the on the back page or whatever, um, he you know, do you think now that sort of there has been an increase in criticism recently, perhaps since the start of this season, that that we may see a more you know, in your words sort of a, aggressive clock perhaps in how he deals with the media, or, or do you think he's learnt from that period at Dortmund? Um, well, I think the major difference is really where the two clubs are. Uh, in in terms of his development and in terms of the two clubs' development, I think it's just a, a very different time now. I don't think he is nearly as much under fire from the media um, as he was maybe in his last couple of years at Dortmund. I think in Liverpool you get the question, the criticism comes sort of from social media, comes from certain people in the fan base, of course comes from the media, but no one's really, I think, so far and said, you know, Jurgen Klopp, you are the number one obstacle to Liverpool having success. I think it is a much more nuanced view of where they should be, where they could improve, but things were that maybe not really down to him. It's a it's a much more complex picture, I think. And uh, I think that's being reflected in a fairly fair 
appraisal of where he is and what he's done over the last two years. And I think he, as long as he doesn't feel that he's being personally unfairly criticized, will always handle the media quite uh, quite sensibly. What, what was interesting to me was when I read back about his mind stays, and I think something of that was also still with Dortmund, and maybe it's a Liverpool as well, is that he somehow, I think, almost takes the local media and sees them as sort of kind of part of the support. Um, I think at some level, even though he will appreciate that the media only do their job and have to be, you know, maybe not neutral, but very fair in their assessment, he, I think, at some level believes that that, that everyone is in the same boat and kind of should try and help the cause. Yeah. And I think he gets very upset when he feels that the media are trying to undermine the progress of the club. Uh, that's when he really, that's something he cannot handle. And it was very, very obvious that at Mainz, you know, when it was only about five journals and Mainz were always constantly fighting for survival, that he took it very badly if he felt sort of undermined and if he felt that the, the media were downwriting at a team and basically telling the team, oh, you're going down, you have no chance, because he felt that that was basically just a really dangerous line and could actually have a real impact on the player's morale. Um, Dortmund and Liverpool, of course, very different animals, but I think there's something of that where he just feels um, people should like should try and help rather than be part of the problem, even if they're you know if they're having a different job. I was going to say uh, he, he he brought that up almost didn't he with um, with. Dejan Lovren recently where he said it was like watching a car crash and standing there with your, with your mobile phone filming it rather than trying to help I think that was the exact sort of phrase he used yeah. um, what's the perception in Germany then in terms of how he's done at Liverpool in terms of his, his overall and he hasn't yet won a trophy but he, he came he should have won one probably in, in, in his first uh, few months in charge and then he's obviously his first full season got them into the Champions League is there a perception that he's, he's doing well at Liverpool or was he expected to do better or, or worse even? No, I think I think it's similar to the appraisal that you have in the UK. I think people say, you know, could have been a little bit better, but it's more or less, it's more or less on track. Um, I think people are realistic. I mean, those who are really into English football understand that he's not um, able to spend £500 million on, on players and that it's a slower, kind of more organic build-up. And of course, that the competition is is quite hard. That uh, that transformative effect, I think, that he can have as a coach is harder to do when you're not up against one superpower, but three or four potentially. So I think it's people understand that you know, whenever there's a kind of a mini crisis like the other day, they haven't won a few games, and you have a story when they had that spell uh, last January when. Liverpool, I think, were in danger of going eight games without a win for the first time in 100 years. I don't know what the stats were. You know, that was the story. But ultimately, I think the bottom line is that people, from everything they've seen about him, believe in him as a manager. And if tomorrow, for whatever reason, he or FSG were to say, you know what, it was fun, but let's let's try something else. Let's try, <laughs> let's uh, finish this. He would walk into any job in Germany. Um, so the interest is, is still huge, and he is still seen, I think, along with uh, Joachim Löw as as the number one manager of his, of his generation, and maybe actually the most important German manager of of the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. And Rafa, to get to get a, an idea of where this sort of 
very talented manager came from in the book you you go right back to his 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 I'm saying village I've not been there myself but so but his birthplace of Glatton I think is that is that how you pronounce it mm-hmm. it sounds like a it sounds like a, a very beautiful place but also one where uh, the the people have a have a have a very particular sort of personality about them and and what seems to come through in the book is this real a virtue being made of hard work and this is very much I think people there describe themselves as Swabian is that right and yes, uh, yes. and this is very much a characteristic of the Swabian isn't it this this hard work ethic yeah it is I mean they're known for being fairly hard workers um, for all aspiring to just save enough money to build your own house um, to be sticklers for you know routine and and making sure that the bins are always out at the right time and that there's no um, recyclable stuff in the in the wrong <laughs> bin and if your neighbor puts out the wrong bin and you'll get telling off and uh, stuff like that i mean as far as the sort of the attention to detail and the hard work is concerned i think has had a, has had a huge impact on german football because a lot of these people who've uh, made big big changes in german football for some reason or another come from this area you know, Jürgen Klinsmann, Ralf Rangnick, Klopp, Thomas Tuchel, um, Joachim Löw. Um, and they all, I think, share this, this work ethic and, and understand football as a job. Uh, and because none of them come really from great player careers, but only have got to where they are in life through hard work, I think that's, that's how they approach everything. They see everything as an opportunity to work and as a problem that needs solving and can be solved with great ideas and with hard work. The only thing I would say is that you know, ultimately I think Swabia as a, as a place and as an idea was just too small for Jürgen. I think he was as a larger than life character very quickly realized that he would outgrow uh, that kind of background and that he needed to go out in the world and luckily for him he had a big break when he had a chance to go to Frankfurt and play for, um, for the second team of Eintracht Frankfurt. Because simply by just being in a in a football area, he was then able to become a professional. Because in you know in the Black Forest, it's not really a hotbed for football. Even though you have interesting people in the youth side and and, and, and a good reputation for sort of grassroots work, it's hard if you're stuck there at 18, 19 to to become a professional footballer. Uh, yeah, in, in terms of in terms of obviously his, his sort of perception of him in, in, in England and, and, and a further he's sort of obviously seen as a you said they're larger than life character. He's got obviously a very quotable in terms of for the media he's he's gold gold for us when he's he's on song and he's he's dishing out quotes and memorable quotes and I'm pretty sure the title of your book is, is sort of derived from one of those quotes of, of his um down the years. Do you do you think that's cut sort of contributed a little bit to a, maybe a misconception sometimes that he's sort of this jocular character. I think he used the phrase recently in a, in a press conference that he was perceived as almost a funny loser um, and, and that people judge him as that. Do you think that, that that's an issue that maybe he's, he's becoming more aware of, that maybe he's, he's being judged more by his words sometimes than his actions and he doesn't get maybe the, the credit he deserves for other attributes that he has? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's necessarily himself that concerned, but that's something that Mike Gordon alluded to, that because people think of him in terms of the the charisma and the motivation and the jokes and the, the kind of the energy, they maybe underestimate just how much 
analytical work and real coaching work and all that kind of stuff he does. I mean, you, I can get I get it sometimes a little bit on on social media when you know when you hear rival fans just says, oh yeah, he hugs players. That's his you know that's his coaching. Yeah. Um, and it's because you know it's because who he is. I think people always home in on something. And when things don't work, then they say, oh, it's because he's just that. But it was clear to me from talking to, to people that he's worked with that they clearly see that that is just part of his character. It's, it's a huge part because I think the ability to be liked and for people to enjoy working with you is, is hugely underestimated. Um, there are lots of German talented coaches out there who maybe technically analytically are on a similar level but don't have this ability to connect with people and that's ultimately a big reason why they don't quite hit the same heights and uh, or you know maybe to use a Premier League example Andre Villas-Boas maybe would be a good one you have to have both and because the one side is obviously the one side you see on uh, on television all the time and you don't really see much of the analytical side even though I think the Sky appearance, uh, Monday Night Football, Monday Night Football helped in that respect. Um, I think tends to uh, create this kind of uh, slightly one-dimensional view of him, which probably is not probably, which is certainly uh, not not the whole story. Yeah, Rafa, we were we were sort of well aware of his media punditry work in, in Germany. I know he had his own show, and you detail that in the book. And but he but you go a step further and sort of really he actually you know he, he did a little bit of sort of journalism himself, didn't he? Rather than just uh, talking about it, and uh, you know it, it it shows that he's he understands both sides of the business, doesn't he? And uh, you know he's had a look at the other side himself uh, beyond punditry even. Yeah, I mean, when he was a uh, second division player at Mainz, he made very little money and they were always in danger of going down, which then for him would have probably spelled the end of his playing career because they wouldn't have been able to to pay for anyone if they'd gone down to the third division. And he very early on, uh, you know, studied sports science and then tried different things and he quickly found with his ability to talk and, uh, you know, to, to have these... Uh, great um, camera on and off and on camera and off camera ideas that he was going to try a bit of uh, sports journalism and he had a chance to be an intern and it worked really well and the people that he was there with are still in the media and still great friends with him and he himself said that uh, if it hadn't worked out with him at football he probably would have ended up uh, as a sports journalist and uh, ended up here is uh, it's kind of a literal translation because of what it means. This <laughs> is like, you know, as a dead end. Yeah. <laughs> if nothing else would have worked, then I would have done. <laughs> yeah. well, just, we all feel like that someday, I don't we? Say, I'm just imagining him dealing with uh, with some of the social media feedback that journalists get now. I think he'd uh, he'd, he'd be he'd be caught in a few storms. I think in uh, in in terms of people criticizing his player ratings or his analysis from certain games. <laughs> um, Raf, you, you obviously other interviews. We, we won't obviously go into too much detail about them, but we, we'll they are there that you, you interview. For example, Peter Kravitz, uh, Adam Lalana is interviewed in it. How important are, are in particular Kravitz and, and Zelka Buvac, who is his backroom staff, who we brought with him? How important are they in terms of part of the Klopp team that he takes with him? Oh, it's it's impossible to to overstate how important these guys are for him. I mean, Buvac is is like his 
one side of his brain, basically. I mean, they are a uh, kind of symbiotic relationship when it comes to football. He really is his main sounding board. He's the guy he trusts blindly. Uh, they constantly talk, you see it in the stadium, when they're always talking about what's happening on the pitch. Um, I think Klopp believes that Buach is some kind of football genius, and Klopp is is only half of that, that without Buvac he wouldn't be where he is today and of course that loyalty goes goes both ways because Klopp is the figurehead, he is the guy that sells the whole thing but the idea, the football is I think really partly Buvac's as well and uh, and Kravitz is, is nearly as important because he does all the scouting and he does the stuff at half time. Only the other day I think Klopp said, I think it was against after Huddersfield that uh, at half time uh, Kravitz cut cut together a few clips and just showed some of the positioning wasn't quite right and they fixed it and you know suddenly uh, Liverpool are winning 3-0 and uh, it was fascinating really fascinating to spend a few hours it was a two, two and a half hours I think I sat with Kravitz to talk about football and to talk about their ideas and how their ideas kind of hit a reality that's maybe a little bit unexpected and a little bit more complicated than they had first realised in, uh, in the Premier League and how they're constantly adjusting and learning and and trying to get things right um, and reacting sort of to the unique challenges that they that they perceive and it really was uh, so so interesting to to hear from him and to get a real insight into their thinking and uh, it's one of the reasons why you know when Liverpool are not doing well or having a problem with the fans or whatever. I always feel quite confident saying, you know what, they're working on it and I think they'll find a way. Um, if you hear about managers who just don't even turn up to training, uh, go golfing instead, and then turn up just before the game and shout at the players, you know, then uh, that doesn't fulfill you with much confidence. But when you know that there's a coaching team who are working day and night on trying to fix the thing and have shown in the past that they can get results, then I think that should buy you a bit of confidence. Um, I'm, I think it's almost a shame that you don't see a bit more of the training um, as a fan, also as the media, because I think you could really learn so much uh, and also just get much more deeper understanding of what it is the coaches are trying to do and where the fault line is, because sometimes the ideas are right and the execution isn't. Sometimes maybe there's a problem with the, execute, with the idea and the execution is not the problem, but it's hard to evaluate all these things if you don't have the direct access, and I think sometimes English football is not doing itself any favours by keeping everything so secret. Uh, Ralph, the, uh, in terms of uh, interesting, you chose Adam Lallana to speak to in terms of, of players, because for many fans, uh, he would be seen as almost like the archetypal sort of Klopp success story, really, at Liverpool, a player who many still had doubts about when he came as uh, as manager and uh, obviously a lot of money spent on him and really he's someone whose reputation has, has really been turned around under Klopp and uh, he must have been an interesting person to chat to about how that's happened really. He was a superb interviewee um, because he could really talk about the process. He could talk about Klopp the manager but also Klopp the coach and Klopp's ideas and how things work and what the problems are. He was so um, open and honest and, and uncomplicated. Um, it was really, really interesting to talk to him. And I think you're right. I think he is a good example of how much of an impact a good coach can have. I'm personally, I'm incredibly surprised about uh, Alberto Moreno because I thought he was like a headless chicken. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, he actually plays 
really decent stuff this season and you could see that uh, there is a player there that has now learned how to do things and not to go into strange areas just and be a bit more switched on and he can actually do a decent job and one of the things that was really interesting to me was that um, they immediately said that they felt the Lovren to them was underrated that people didn't quite realize all the good stuff that he was doing, that they were looking at the mistakes, but perhaps didn't see all the stuff he did really, really well. That is, of course, a problem, I think, for most centre-backs, yeah. um, because people only look at them when they make mistakes. And uh, then you've got this additional, maybe, I'd say, slight Premier League English obsession with defenders making last-ditch clearances or um, flying into tackles, and then they're, they're seen as great defenders those who just stand in the right position and nothing happens, you know, people doesn't, don't talk about them. Um, and we can, of course, you know, debate that. I mean, maybe their trust has been misplaced. Maybe they have overestimated the ability of the, of the centre-backs. I think that's an argument that can be had. But it was very interesting, and this is, because this is in, uh, in May when I talked to him, that he was one of the players, Pete Crowley, that uh, he talked about it, that he felt everyone had told him how, how this, what a disaster he is before they came in, in October uh, 15, and then they realized, actually, this is a pretty decent centre-back. And I think they're, they're quite happy to look at players with fresh eyes and and try to find a system that makes, that makes them work, even if they may be a bit limited. And I think that is really one of the key reasons why FSG also like him, because it'd be very easy, I think, for a manager to say, I need two more centre-backs, I need two midfielders, I need a proper number nine, I need a number left back, not really sure about the right back either, and just constantly just knock on the door and say, I need more players, I need more players. And that is, of course, how stuff used to traditionally be done at many clubs. Um, Klopp, because of his work at places where money was never really that freely available, sees his job in coaching, first and foremost. And uh, if I were to own a club, you know, I'd be very happy. If, <laughs> if a guy wanted to work first with what he's got and then later on say, you know what, I've tried, but we need to make changes and I think that's one of the key attractions for club. Yeah, is, uh, is training not transfers uh, motto still uh, shines out, doesn't it, Raf? But uh, listen, we know you've got to you got to go. Um, we I just want to say you, you mentioned earlier that sort of all your work on the book and all the people you've spoken to has made you like Klopp more even uh, than perhaps than you, that even than you did before. Uh, has it has your work on the book and the people you've spoken to about Klopp made you feel more confident that he's someone who will bring success? Uh, back to Anfield and, and uh, you know that we can expect to see a few trophies on the sideboard in the next couple of seasons I would say I was pretty confident about his chances before yeah. um, I'm more confident now simply because I think that what he does is, is not um, is not based on bluff it's not just based on on you know on, on words on um, having sound bites but there's, there's real work there going on and, uh, and crucially, which has nothing to do with him so much, is I think what I have learned is just the, the amount of backing he really has inside the club. And I think in, in this market, in this uh, environment, that is, that is another key factor. And I think Liverpool didn't get everything they wanted in the transfer market, but I think you could see that there is a new kind of willingness to actually A, keep players, and B, really go for it and buy big players. 
and the combination of these two things, you know, his personal background plus the the uh, commitment that SSG have shown to him and are continuing to show, makes me pretty confident that he he would have success. Whether he can win the title, the title, I'm not so sure, but I think he will achieve success at a realistic level and maybe just go a little bit beyond that as he was able to do with Dortmund. Fabulous. Yeah, well, let's hope let's hope you're uh, you're proven right and that confidence is uh, is is delivered upon from from Jurgen Klopp over the next few years and I'm sure it'll be exciting to watch no matter what happens in that time. Um, Raphael, th- thank you very much for your time and much appreciated. I know you're very busy on the promotional trail now and um, we expect uh, there'll be a lot of uh, a lot more of these type of engagements for you over the coming week or so. Um, Klopp, bring the noise, available 16th of November from Yellow Jersey Press. And as I say, myself and Andy have had a look through it today and it's, uh, it's well worth well worth looking at. One for the, uh, one for the Santa list, I think, yes, for a lot of people for, for Christmas. Out, coming out at the right time of year as well, definitely, Rafa. Uh, thanks very much for your time, Rafa. No, thank you for having me. Thanks, Rafa. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, mate. Ook bewust bezig zijn met je mobiel? Dat kan al voor 21,50 per maand met de iPhone SE 32 GB. Nu met 300 minuten of sms'jes en 1000 MB 4G internet. Kijk op ben.nl Let op. Geld lenen kost geld.